Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to our time of study in God's Word. Uh, Right now we're going through the book of Psalms, and the title of our study today is Deliver Us From Deception. Today we're going to look at Psalm uh, 12. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Word is true and that we can stand on it because it, it tells us what the truth is. And so, Lord, as we look at this great psalm today, I pray that you would teach us to ground our confidence, to ground our hope in the truth of your word, and that we would not be moved, that we would not compromise on the word, but that we would stand on all that Scripture teaches, because it is enough for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the the tongue that make great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, with our lips with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. This is the reading of God's precious holy word. As we start, I have two questions for you. Have you ever felt alone? And by that, I mean, have you really ever felt really alone? As David wrote this psalm, Psalm 12, he felt totally alone. He looked around at his life and he saw only enemies. In Psalm 11, the wicked were destroying the foundations of society, and now it seemed like they had succeeded in wiping out the godly with their lies and with their deception. In fact, David may have written this psalm as Saul was trying to kill him. Saul lied about David to manipulate his leaders. In return, people lied to Saul in 1 Samuel 24 verse 9. David may have also written this during his son's Absalom rebellion. Absalom seduced Israel with his lies and his military coup was marked by espionage, by betrayal, by misdirection and intrigue. Whenever this was written, David felt totally alone. Our, Our Lord Jesus was alone when he walked through this world. He was the only son of God. He was the only man in history, who always spoke the truth. 
And in the end, his closest friends abandoned him, and he walked the road to the cross himself, all alone. David's sense of isolation in Psalm 12 points forward to Christ, the Son of God. In fact, David entrusted this psalm to the choir master so that his future generations would hear these words sung in the temple, take them to heart, and learn to love the truth. Unfortunately, they didn't listen. Years later, the prophets Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah condemned Israel for the same wicked culture of lies in their books. And if this is how things are among the people of God, what must the Gentile world be like? In fact, David extrapolates from what was happening in Israel to conclude that all humanity is depraved. The psalm begins and ends globally with David's comment on all human beings. In verse 1, David says the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. In verse 8, he says, vileness is exalted among the children of men when God's people are corrupt. What must the rest of the world be like? People who have never known God, who have never known the word of God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the world in which we live. This is the world that is a set against the authority of the word of God and against the Christ that is revealed in the word, God's king. If you are a Christian, what should you do when you feel all alone in a society that is soaked in lies and deception? Psalm 12 is very instructive for us. David prays for help, for help as wickedness prevails in the first four verses. And then David trusts God's promise to protect his people in verses 5 through 8. And as the psalm opens... David has nowhere to look. He has nowhere to look because of his enemies. So he has nowhere to look other than the Lord. He could have retreated, but instead he lifts up his prayer to the God of heaven. And there are Christians today who spend more time complaining about the sinfulness of our world than they do in prayer. They spend more time listening to talk radio and news outlets and reading newspapers than they do reading God's word and engaging with God's people. And yet David does the opposite of this. He starts with the right instincts. He doesn't look at his trials. He doesn't look at his problems. He looks to the Lord. He calls out to the Lord for help. In fact, David's first words are a short prayer that, that shoots up to heaven like an arrow. Save, O Lord, this could be translated, help, O Lord. David fills out his prayer for help with an explanation, save, O Lord, for the godly is gone, for the faithful had vanished from among the children of men, in verse 1. And when we think of faithfulness, we often think of being faithful to the sound doctrine that's in the word of God, remaining faithful to the truth, right? Well, it's important. In fact, Jude 3 tells us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But faithful here in Psalm 12, 1, it means uh, faithful living that pleases God. The faithful are those who keep their commitment. They, they are, are standing fast in the truth. They honor the Lord and they desire to serve him from the heart. They honor their relationship with others through their loyalty, through their trustworthiness, through their integrity, through their dependability. 
And David saw many people who said all the right things. He, he didn't see many people whose lives matched their words. It's the same today. You can be orthodox in your theology, but your life and your heart is far from God. You don't believe me. Go read John 5 through 12. Here were the Pharisees, right? They thought that they had it all together. These were the, the teachers, the, the, the professors in the, in the seminaries of their day. And you look at how they treated Christ, who came to die in their place and for their sin and to rise again. John 5 through 12, read it. Be shocked. Because here's Jesus. Jesus is performing all these miracles. He's showing them the one who has real authority. The one who, the one who has come under the sentence of death. And what do they do? They want to put Jesus to death. They want to stone Jesus. And yet John reminds us again and again, as he does throughout his gospel, that it's not the hour. The hour is the time when Christ will die. That hour in John's gospel ends at the end of Gethsemane, his, his, the Garden of Gethsemane in John uh, 18. The hour is then. That's the hour which God the Father has appointed for God the Son to go to the cross to pay a penalty in our place and for our sin and to be buried and to rise. So yes, you can be orthodox in your theology while your life is far from God. In fact, if we look in John 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures, it says, because they testify of me. This is not a compliment. They knew, Jesus is saying to them, you knew, you know the scriptures. And yet you miss me in the scriptures. You miss me in the Old Testament. You miss the sacrificial lamb who has to pay the penalty every year. Every time you come and every time you offer a a bull or anything, a blood offering or anything of that nature for, to, for atonement for sin. You miss the point of the sacrifice. You miss the point of the law. You miss the point of the scriptures that you say you believe. That's what Jesus was saying in John 5. So you can be orthodox in your theology while your life is far from God. There, there are, there are many today. There's so many examples. We're living in a time when people approach the Bible, unlike they would any other book. They to cast, they come to it to cast doubt on it, or they come with supposed presuppositions, right? That cast doubt on the text because they want it to mean something other than what it means. They don't want the parts about gender and sexuality to mean what, what it says. They don't want to reckon with a God of justice. And so they would prefer to just have a God of social justice. A God who is interested in exercising and doing what is right, but, but not a God who all, will ultimately and always do what is right. We, we have even people today who come to the Bible 
to to do away with the first three chapters of the Bible. And 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 they view it as a collection of poetry and myth and fairy tales. How what uh, excuse me, what you do with the Bible, it really matters. You you can say all the right things, you can believe all the right things. But the question is, how are you doing at your practice? Lots of Christians can say amen to that, right? We can all say, you know what? I believe the right things, and isn't that enough to know what I believe and why I believe it? I want to say yes. But it also matters on the other side. How are you doing at those things being molded and shaped by your life? Over and over again in the New Testament epistles, we, we see not, it's not just doctrine that matters, believing the right things that deriving from God's word, but how those things are being worked out in our lives. Colossians 3, great example. Put off the old man, put on the new man. There's a whole list of things that we're not to do. Even before we get to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, uh, Paul defines us as who we once were, and then says, no, this, this is who you are. We've all seen men that are, and women that are orthodox in their theology. But their life is far from God. David saw them too. They, they offered sacrifices. They observed the religious festivals, but their lives denied what their lips said. And so he concluded this in verse 2, the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And David zeroes in on their wicked speech as the essence of their evil. In verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Lying, fake compliments, proud boasting had destroyed faithful living. And the word everyone describes the breadth of the problem that David wants to address in this psalm. The phrase to his neighbor in verse 2 emphasizes the depth of the problem. The young and old, rich and poor, male and female, every segment of Israel society was deceitful. The fabric of society was torn since neighbor was lying to neighbor. Nothing is going to destroy our relationship with one another more than lying to one another in our local churches. When we are dishonest with each other, we tear apart the body of Christ that was bought with the precious blood of our Savior and King. Deceit breeds distrust. Distrust leads to division. This is why Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If we want to live in love, in unity, we must be people of the truth. In fact, in order to be a person of the truth, you must be a person of the Word of God. Make no mistake about it. That in and of itself is a consequential statement in a day in which we are seeing a vast multitude of people being surveyed. They, they not only have no understanding of sin, but that even as many as 40% of those surveyed who go to church they don't even know the basics of why Jesus came. That is, that salvation is only through, only, only the, the, the way of salvation, 
I'll say it this way. The way of salvation is only through Christ alone. Dear friends, we have a significant problem. Where do we discover this? And then you, and then you look out at the statistics about, uh, and Bible reading is down. People don't have a biblical worldview. They, they don't even understand the reason and the way for which salvation has come. My dear brothers and sisters, to, to be the people of the book is significant in our day. And it, it's only because of this that we can dwell in unity. If we know what the Bible says, if we know what the Bible teaches, then we will love the truth. And we will desire to live in love and unity with one another in our local churches. We need to understand that what our lips say comes from who we are inside. Matthew 12, 34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when we think of the heart as a seat of, of the emotions, we might make a, a Valentine's Day card for Valentine's Day or something of the like. But in the Hebrew mind, the heart is a seat of knowledge and wisdom. It's your true self. The, in the scripture, the heart is usually closer to what we think of as the intellect or the mind. The double heart of man is thinking two things at the same time, what he wants and what they need to say to get what we want. And so truth takes a backseat to selfishness. The Apostle James gave us a classic description of the power of evil in the human tongue in James 3, 5 through 8, which says, So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison." It's no wonder then that David calls on God to take such drastic measures. He asks God to do away with liars in verses 3 through 4, which says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? What does David mean by cutting off lips and slicing out the tongue? Well, that sounds grotesque, you might think. And yet the parallelism between verses 3 and 4 suggests this is a figure of speech called a sinuk, where parts of the body refer to the whole person. When a person, when a ship's captain says, all hands on deck, he wants more than just thumbs and figures. He wants his sailors on deck, their whole bodies. And yet in the same way, the lips and the tongue in verse 3 refer to the flatterers and the boasters themselves as people David asked God to cut off their lives. And this might be, seem like a harsh, harsh prayer until you stop to think about the destruction that liars and deceivers do with their tongues. A 14-year-old Christian girl in Pakistan named Rimshi Mashah was accused of desecrating the Quran, a crime punishable by death under Islamic law. It turns out that an imam from a local mosque planted pages from the Quran in a bag of garbage he was uh, taking out to burn. The police discovered the truth and Rimshaw was freed. Others have not been so lucky. They have been put to death on the basis of false testimony. 
And yet liars and boasters can do far worse by perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who listen will lose more than their lives. They'll lose their eternal soul. And when Jude warns us that false teachers will creep into the church, he describes them with the very words of Psalm 12. And Jude 16 saying, They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. They want attention. These teachers not only condemn themselves, they drag others into the fires of hell with them. And by the way, hell is a place of unrelenting, unending conscious punishment. On November 18, 1978, Jim Jones led 914 members of his cult to commit mass suicide in Ghana. He, he boasted that God anointed him. He flattered his people. He betrayed them body and soul. Most followers do not take uh, their, their, the, most false teachers do not take their followers' lives physically like this, but their false gospel just as surely leads them to eternal punishment in hell. And when we consider the damage that deceivers can do with the tongue, David's harsh words make even more sense. In fact, the stakes are so high that the punishment must fit the crime. Good talkers think they can win the world with their words. Consider Karl Marx. His thought has become even more popular, especially in the last few years. He says this, give me 26 lead soldiers and I'll conquer the world. The soldiers he was referring to were the 26 letters of the alphabet. The closing words of the Communist Manifesto are a powerful slogan. They say working men of all countries unite. These six words have mobilized and motivated millions and millions of people. But in a demonstration in Moscow on the 72nd anniversary of communism in Russia, people carried signs that said, Workers of the world, we're sorry. In 72 years, leading nowhere, boastful words may succeed for a season, but ultimately they will fail. And we can't just apply this to others without looking at ourselves. Our own lips are deceitful. According to James, your tongue and mine is a restful evil that makes great boasts. Verse 3 of Psalm 12 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We all deserve to be judged for our words if we're honest we know that, that we have hurt and we have deceived others with our tongues. And yet, where does that leave us? There's only been one man who never flattered, who never boasted, who was never deceived in the slightest. The Bible says that in 1 Peter 2, 22, that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus Christ is the one man who never sinned with his words. The good news of the gospel is that although you and I should be condemned for our words, our sins can be forgiven, they can be wiped away, and we can be credited with the, with the sinless mouth and spotless obedience of Jesus Christ. That's what 1 Peter 2, 24 says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, when we come to Jesus, he turns us into faithful people, Speak the truth from the heart. That's why Ephesians 4.15 is not an option. It's because, it's because of what Christ has done in giving us a new heart with new desires and new affections that Ephesians 4.15 says to speak the truth in love. 
to speak the truth in love. If you were to go look at all of these lists, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, etc., and so forth, they almost always, always have love in them. Now, today we talk about love in this way. We, we think, well, I, I'm just a loving person. I, I love it. But what's the source for our love? If we are sinners by nature and by choice, and we love ourselves more than anybody else, and we are at war with God outside of Christ, then that is not possible for us to have a legitimate source for love. There's this whole self-love movement, just love yourself. But if love is self-directed, how can it have a foundation? And the answer is it can't. It doesn't. Love must be grounded in truth. Today we have the opposite. We have love for the sake of love, but no truth, and that's not love. Love must be grounded in the truth. That's why why Paul says in Ephesians 4.15 that we are to speak the truth, not just the truth that we want, the truth of God's word, and we're to do so in love. And the reason that we do that is because of what Jesus has done. John 14, 17 says this, that the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us is called the spirit of truth. God's truth lives inside of us. Second John 2, it's not enough to be uh, like Jiminy Cricket and never tell a lie. Our tongue is a restless evil. Even if we never utter another deceitful word, we are guilty for the things that we have already said. We need our guilt taken away and a new power inside of us that is strong enough to tame our tongue. We need to be forgiven through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We need the power of God's Spirit inside of us. We need to be saved. People who trust their ability to speak think they'll never be accountable. They ask, who is master over us? The answer is easy. God is our covenant Lord. He is our master. He is going to judge us. In the second half of Psalm 12, God's word confronts the words of the wicked. Man's words seem powerful, but they're weak. God's words may seem weak, but they are living. They are powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says they they can cut to the very heart of the heart of the problem. This is the first psalm that contains a direct answer from God to the psalmist's prayer. It is only the second psalm to quote God's words directly. Psalm 2.6 was the first. An answer, a direct answer to prayer stands out because it's a rare in the psalms. Psalm 12.5 says, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The weak and the helpless are the first victims of a deceitful society, but the Because they are powerless, the poor and the needy are vulnerable. Sometimes the needy are actively plundered. Scammers take advantage of them with cheap products, cheap furniture that falls apart, used cars that were written off in a flood, or food that has no nutritional value. And since they don't have a financial cushion, it's easy to rip them off with a credit card scam and a payday loan. Brewers and distillers often target low-income commitments with billboards. They promise a man he'll have a good time and be popular if he drinks the beer. In return for his money, they give his family a drunken man for a husband and a father. But God sees 
when the poor are plundered. And he also hears when the needy groan from neglect in a deceitful society. Neighbors do not trust each other or even care for each other as they should. No brother lifts uh, bothers to lift the load from the widow's shoulders. No one stands up for the immigrant who has paid less than they're worth. No one thinks to feed the children who are hungry over the weekend. But God hears them moan when nobody cares. In the context of these psalms, the godly are by and large poor and oppressed. The wicked shoot at them from the shadows. They've been so successful that the godly seem to have disappeared from the land. And David numbers himself among the poor and the needy by using the pronoun us in verse 7. And so while David speaks of the poor in general, he's also thinking about God's people who are often trampled and abused in the world. God sees and he hears the cries of his people. And God takes action like a warrior standing up to do battle. God says in verse 5, I will arise. He is the champion of his people. God is at work every day in the life of his people through divine providence. But the word now implies a specific moment in time when God takes action. This decisive moment came when God sent forth God the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And when Christ began his earthly ministry, Jesus defined his ministry as announcing good news as to the poor, as he taught in the synagogue. In Luke 4, 17 through 21, we read this encounter where he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled out the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, throughout history, the gospel has especially gone forward among the poor and the needy of society. This was true of churches in the first century. The, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And even today, the church is growing most quickly in the majority world of the southern and the eastern hemispheres, not the affluent west. God took decisive action through Jesus Christ. And more often than not, it has been the poor who have responded to his call. He places everyone who calls on him in the safety for which they long. The walls of his kingdom surround us. They protect us more securely than shield, armor, or even a missile defense system. That does not mean that you'll never lose your job because of a coworker who lies about you. That doesn't mean that you'll never be deceived and tricked out of your savings. It does mean that God will only allow things into your life that'll be for your good and for his glory. And even if the worst happens, you know that God is in control and he's using even this hardship to help you grow. In fact, as painful as it is, this hardship is the best thing that, that could ever help to you. It helps you to grow in Christ and to see that God is truly for you. And all this 
was still far off for David as he wrote Psalm 12. Christ would not come to earth for another thousand years. We might wait for another for years and years before we see God's hand uh, step in and work in this way in our lives. You might go to your grave still waiting for God to make things right. And yet there is a day when all things at the great white throne judgment will be made right. Justice will be served because we serve a just God. We need to ask ourselves a question. Can we trust God to keep his promise? And the answer from David is yes. David responds to God's word with a beautiful expression of faith. In verse 6, the word of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace to the ground. The words of the wicked are corrupt. Every word of God, on the other hand, is precious. It's pure. And the picture here is of a silversmith refining precious metals to remove the impurities. David compares God's word to silver refined in a crucible, not four times, but seven times. Not even the slightest impurity remains. The silver is ultra pure, ultra precious. This is a picture of the priceless perfection of God's word. Today, we typically use the term inerrancy to describe the purity and the truthfulness of God's word. Inerrancy means that the scriptures are without error. And if we state it positively, inerrancy means that the scriptures are wholly true. Because God inspired the scriptures by his spirit, the scriptures are true and without error whenever they speak about history, geography, science, archaeology, as well as spiritual truth and matters of salvation. Charles Spurgeon described the tested purity of God's word this way when he said, So clear and free from all alloy of air of, or unfaithfulness is the book of the words of the Lord. The Bible is passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing with those human interpretations which clung to it as alloy to its precious ore. The experience of saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. And when David heard God's answer to his prayer, he marveled at the brilliant perfection and the purity of the word of God. His faith continued as he stood on the promise of God and trusted him to protect his life. Psalm 12, 7 through 8, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from the generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. Now, nothing has changed in David's life. The wicked are, are still prowling as they were at the beginning of the psalm. If anything, the situation is worse. Not only are the godly still a small remnant, but depravity is exalted among all peoples. But David has changed. He's not crying out to God for help anymore. He has heard the word of God. He believes it. Whatever man may do, God surrounds him with his presence as with a shield. That was David's confidence. It, it was the confidence of our Lord as he walked in a world of lies and deceit. It needs to be our confidence too. John Newton described God's protection in a familiar hymn. It says this, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. God, whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all they foes. Do you know God? Do you know his word? 
If you do, you'll be able to smile with quiet Christian confidence at the world around you. We are living in a time when, make no mistake about it, truth itself is under attack. There's even a word in the Oxford Dictionary. They assigned it several years ago as the word of the year. Post-truth. So we can't know the truth. Then, then truth has no meaning. Words to have no meaning. So we can't know what a thing is for certain. So then we need to ask, why even have dictionaries? Why even, why even have words? Why even use words that they have no meaning if, if they're just, everything is post-truth. Everything goes back to me. This is ultimately the problem with the self-love movement because it's all about me. It's all about me. It's always about me. And so I'll protect my own kingdom. I'll protect my own territory. I'll say whatever I want, whenever I want, whenever, whenever I want to say it. And this is what people do on social media. This is what people do on television. We are a society that is infatuated with ourselves. We will say and we will do whatever we want when we want to do it. But the Christian's response to that is the opposite. We are a people of the book, the Bible, the Word of God. Our confidence rests on the, the worth and the value of the Word of God, which is the truth. And behind the Bible is the God who Titus 1-2 says never lies. He is holy. He is just. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is altogether lovely, majestic, beautiful, glorious, and on and on we could go. And in the midst of this ever-changing culture, we have a God who is unchanging. And so we can take his word, as, as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, we can take his word to the bank because all of the word of the Lord it finds its fulfillment, its apex, its goal in the person and the work of Christ. Today you might feel alone, but, but you'll know that God has placed you in the, in the safety for which you long if you are in Christ. He's given you his word. He sent forth his son to pay the penalty. He's indwelt you with the spirit. He's called you to mission. Dear Christian, what other thing do you need? Stand fast, stand on the word, and declare it with boldness, without fear, all for God's glory and for the good of those that God has placed you around to minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that we can stand fast on it in this ever changing and ever-evolving word, but behind the word is a God who never lies. You are the God who never lies. You are holy, you are majestic, you are true, you are loving, you are merciful, and most importantly, the entire Bible points to you. It is all about you, Lord. So help us to remember in the midst of all that's going on in the, in the days where our frustration grows, where anxiety uh, is, is high in the, in the moments where we might be down in the dumps. Lord, your word has something to say to those things. Your word is a light to our path. 
It teaches us. It instructs us. It helps us. And Lord, help us to see that we not only need your word personally, but that but that we need to do life with one another in the, our local church under biblically qualified male pastors who preach and teach and shepherd the flock of God. Help us to see our need not only for you, Lord, but to do life under and shaped by your word and by your son. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.